This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brightest crayons in the box, those who have been leading and building for over a decade, and those who have just joined the space, and really everyone in between to understand where we came from, where we are now, where we're going, and to kind of have like mind-blowing conversations uh, during this next hour that you can take offline and talk to your friends and really understand uh, all these different aspects of the crypto space, the NFT, Web3, decentralization, Bitcoin, its history, its founding, and kind of everything in between. Uh, This is my favorite thing to do. Uh, uh, I love you guys and I really appreciate it. I want to give a quick shout out. I see you, Saudi Arabia. I see you, Great Britain. I see you, South Korea. You guys have had me on your top 50 uh, podcasts of the week charts this week. You guys, thank you so much for listening. I see you guys. I see you, Russia. I know I've been seeing me creep up on the charts there. The US, of course. Thanks, thank you guys. Mexico, I see you there. Canada, you guys have been my OGs forever. Thank you all for listening. I see you. And whenever we make it to the top charts, I'm going to give you guys a shout out. And uh, whenever you leave me a positive review or any type of review on Untold Stories on, on Apple or on Spotify, I'm going to give you guys that shout out as well. So please have like a, a username that's uh, uh, from past experience. Please have a username that's uh, somewhat appropriate for the show because there are kids listening. And uh, I, I, I didn't know people were like, Charlie. Charlie, you know, we listen with our kids in the car, so maybe don't, you know, keep the profanity down a little bit. I know this is my show. <laughs> Not mine also. You kids have to learn somewhere at some point. Anthony Georgiades, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You are the co-founder of the Pastel Network. You're a general partner at Innovating Capital, a technology fund focused on disruptive companies and digital assets. You guys uh, incubated the Pastel Network since day one. And you previously spent time on the team at First Round Capital and on the operations team of various startups. So you know operations. You studied at Wharton, the school that I actually didn't get into. And um, you've been around the block. You understand teams and fundamentals. The Pastel Network is the first fully dedicated, decentralized digital art platform that is allowing users to register, store, and trade provably rare assets. The network is a fork of from Zcash running the proof-of-work algorithm. Uh, Equihash, you support masternodes from Dash. There's all these different, uh, from the ground up, how you have built it. Where is this tide going? Uh, it's the question that everyone's been asking me. I have my answers. But you know, you're, you're deep in the trenches of building out these, these rare, uh, um, provably rare different pieces of art. I just saw last week that maybe like a grandson of Picasso is about to release some some former, you know, works online. Who knows what's going on? Where, where do you think this whole thing is going to impact our broader society in the next like ten years? Yeah, I mean, look, this is the macro point of NFT is is crazy, and and you know, you obviously mentioned kind of um, my background and being in the space for some time. So it, it's interesting to kind of look back to when you know the ERC seven twenty one standard first came out. Um, and the use cases that you know people started to really think about, digital art was was one, 
these ideas of PFPs were one, but it was always meant to be a lot more macro. Was it going to take over this idea of STOs and security tokens? Um, what can this standard really mean for the future of just any kind of immutable, stale, slow-moving data? Um, this could be anything from a you know digital identity to your social security to basically, um, I don't know, data that's being generated from a well in the middle of Texas, yeah. real estate, financial products. So the broader kind of NFT trend is just getting started and it's going to be so exciting to see where things go. But you know, my passion really was drawn to this particular aspect of the space. You know, as I was initially by blockchain, its ability to help disintermediate a lot of different aspects of various markets. We all know certain markets are highly inefficient today. You have tons of intermediaries that, you know, for a lot of reasons might not necessarily be value accretive to the broader supply chain. And in the case of contemporary art, why I was so excited about NFTs democratizing digital art is that that industry itself has been so rifled with broader fraud, manipulations, scams, accessibility, the inability for an emerging artist in you know, the middle of Southeast Asia to basically make a, you know, make a career for themselves or get into the space. But now with peer-to-peer completely decentralized trustless technologies, that same artist can create a digital living copy of an amazing piece find a creator that's or find a collector that supports them across the world and monetize on it and little thing little things like features that we don't even think about like a like a royalty right how do you contribute to royalties and contemporary art with a blockchain and smart contracts that becomes a feature of nfts that artist is going to continue to monetize on that piece into perpetuity right so there's just so many exciting things that can be done with this technology in terms of the empowerment, the decentralization, and the broader democratization. The the ERC-20 standard on Ethereum really was the watershed moment for our whole, our whole crypto industry, our whole space, our whole, you know, the future of our society, because that enabled on Ethereum, on the Ethereum blockchain, to create like a billion or whatever you want of your own token that you name, and you can control... Uh, preset through smart contracts, the interactions between token holders, between tokens, between, you know, but one token was never different from another. We'd call that fungibility and fungibility for a long time. Like no one had ever thought really to do these like, hey, let's do the radical opposite of like a non-fungible token. There were uh, like the rare Pepe's built on on MasterCoin network on top of on top of Bitcoin. But it was largely metadata in reference to, and right. it wasn't, uh, it was very early timing. Can you explain the ERC-721 standard, how that's different from ERC-20? I think most people don't really know the difference. They hold a token in their wallet, whether it's a token of like an Ethereum token or it's an NFT, that token smart contract style is radically different. And I would even argue that the 721 will completely change, will completely replace ERC-20 in the next five years? Yeah, I mean, look, I think just given the you know, broader question, I think the first thing to understand is, you know, really what is kind of fungibility and non-fungibility, right? You have a Bitcoin, I have a Bitcoin. We can swap them, it doesn't matter. You have a hundred bucks, I have a hundred bucks. It doesn't matter, right? Fungibility. You know, non-fungibility are things that we interact with all the time in a day-to-day basis. Your house, your social security number, 
you know, my one of one pair of shoes that I bought, right? Uh, a Picasso painting. So what's important to understand is, you know, again, the ERC standard itself, which is basically, you know, Ethereum request for comments um, is kind of a core piece of functionality of Ethereum. At the end of the day, it's basically think about it like a standard of rules for creating, you know, tokens on Ethereum, right? And these tokens, these ERC tokens themselves are preset with certain instructions. Um, basically how many exist, unit limits, existence of tokens, things of the nature, right? ERC721, a simple way to put it is, and also 1155 as well, um, is base, are basically two standards that allow for the existence of kind of these, you know, non-fungible type of assets itself. Um, and so, you know, again, you can think about adding additional functionality. ERC721 has become quite popular, you know, radically growing towards basically NFT standards today. Um, and all, all in all, I mean, look, this sort of smart contract development and the flexibility that this smart contract standard has offered is going to just completely change Enscape that we can even think about non-fungibility in the future. Everything will be represented as an NFT in your wallet. Like, you know, you'll see uh, shares of your house that you can very quickly turn into, you know, a 10 NFTs potentially. You'll see the ability for, um, you'll see the ability for, I mean, someone pitched me on a blockchain that only updates twice a year or on election days. Like the blocks are preset to only update on election days and you set your vote, you know, in the months in advance for that date and then the blockchain updates and you'd have the voting mechanism there because you don't need a blockchain that updates every 10 minutes when it comes to maybe maybe how we do run our democracy. So there, you have all these different blockchains that do all these different things. What what about what what did you fine tune with the Pastel network uh that addressed major issues that you saw with the NFT space that was going on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a couple other things too, just kind of back on your point of, you know, ERC721, and, and this will kind of segue into um, Pastel, you know, but the, the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind is, you know, again, the fact that that standard is, you know, non-fungible in nature, right? Each underlying token has its own specific identity that can be very easily distinguished. Um, you know, there's no ability to substitute it and it's, you know, not divisible, right? Um, and those kind of specific tokens can enable special ownership functions. And so the segue into pastel and more of the macro idea around this is the broader view of the world of Web3 and where things are going in blockchain, from my perspective, has always been this kind of multi-chain paradigm. Yes, Ethereum could be kind of this single isolated, you know, general purpose blockchain with thousands of layer twos and layer threes on top scaling solutions and various side chains to basically allow for full optimization, you know, speed, scalability, security. But it's become kind of apparent to me that we're moving into a multi-chain paradigm and you'll have various general purpose blockchains with their own ecosystems. But what was missing to me is the idea of this kind of application specific blockchain. Um, I and agree. I think that's where a lot... Was that? I agree. I agree a lot, actually. Yeah, 100%. Up until now, like every NFT, whether it's like a JPEG or a video or a music file or representation of something else, the the reference of the data 
sits on the Ethereum blockchain, but not the data itself. I interviewed Audius, who had the same problem with music, and they had to launch their own custom-built blockchain for that because it's the same problem. These blockchains aren't built to ever hold data. Yeah, exactly. If, if the individual parts of the sum are not all decentralized, it's centralized, right? And so in the case of a lot of NFTs, if I acquire an NFT itself, and like you said, the reference, in this case, a token URI field that has a link to where that file might be stored, but that actual link of storage is, you know, Charles' home computer or my server in AWS where I'm maintaining the bill, right? Then it becomes a centralized problem of, you know, permanence and losslessness, right? And so one of the core fundamental things that Pastel served to really solve was, hey, how can we ensure that pure NFT data is tightly coupled with the smart contract that underpins it by storing that data on chain on the actual underlying decentralized ecosystem? So in the case of Pastel, the way to think about storage is we use a very, very um, advanced technology called Raptor Q. It's an encoding technique that you know, for the simple way of thinking about it, we take an NFT file, could be whatever, a picture, video, whatever it might be. We chop it up into a bunch of chunks. We then copy those chunks and randomly distribute them across every single super node or, you know, super server that's running the network. So at the end of the day, what you have is a highly redundant storage solution that's completely permanent. And to me, the most important aspect is pay once, store forever. Not in the case of worrying about maintaining some sort of external dependency, maintaining, you know, pinning, worried about basically a node that might behave with malintent yeah. and say, you know what, this file's not getting cached or called. I'm not going to continue to store it. I'm not getting incentivized for it itself. And so that was one of the fundamental pillars of what we really solved with the pastel blockchain itself is this idea of storage. And it seems like it's such a it's supposed to be such a table stakes thing, but people don't realize, right? It costs, you know, how much space does it take up to transfer 100 billion fungible tokens from one Ethereum address to another? Effectively, no storage space whatsoever. But a high fidelity, high integrity type application, a picture of a board ape, an Axie Infinity, right, takes up a ton of storage on the chain itself, but it's really required this isolated application specific blockchain. And yeah, you know, like the, even, even, uh, Board apes on top of Ethereum are not vector. So you can't enhance the images as large as you want them. So where does where do they sit? Right. Well, in the case of board apes, right, they they use something called IPFS. Um, okay. Board apes is a good example, right? And there's there's also a fundamental flaw with a lot of the NFT ecosystem today in the sense of you kind of have two options if you're a creator. Number one, I can go and onto OpenSea or one of these kind of user-facing marketplaces and use their pre-existing predetermined set smart contract, open Zeppelin um, deployment, right? And I don't necessarily get to add a lot of the additional functionality that I might want to in terms of making sure that I'm storing the file where I want it to be stored, making sure that I can add additional metadata to the actual smart contract standard that I want to be there permanently forever, I'm beholden to a, basically a preset condition or template that they gave me. On the other end of the spectrum, as a creator, 
I have the option to figure out how to deploy my own smart contract to the Ethereum virtual machine by running a bunch of code and doing a bunch of things that you know, it's I presume. stressful already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, again, I, I do think it's an important point you bring up that, you know, if you are a creator or a collector in the space, you understand some of the gating items by using some of these existing user interfaces. And if you're a collector going out and buying a board ape, ensuring that, you know, you know that, hey, you know what, this existing entity has actually deployed their smart contract in a way that's secure. I definitely do applaud them in the sense of how they went through it. Everything is very clear and transparent, pinned to IPFS. Now, again, I do have certain issues with IPFS itself. In terms I was of- going to ask you about that. So, so IPFS is one of the great inventions of our community in the last 10 years. You know, if we look at Satoshi and solving the Byzantine generals problem, kind of bringing computing and brain power to the next level, having Byzantine fault tolerance, uh, fully decentralized, distributed, amazing. And then the past few years, I think it was the Filecoin Foundation. There's a name for them. The, 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 uh, the, the foundation around, sorry? Protocol Labs. Protocol Labs. Thank you. They uh, came up, they've started to pioneer uh, this interplanetary file exchange system that is kind of seen as the darling uh, in the next, like the uh, the invention that brings like a file storage to the next level, better than peer-to-peer, better than BitTorrent protocols, et cetera, et cetera. And it's amazing. But why is it not the ideal way to store NFTs? So the the fundamental idea with IPFS it uses something called a you know content identifier or basically a CID. It's kind of like a label point um, that's used to kind of basically point to material on IPFS. And what's interesting about it too is it doesn't necessarily indicate you know where the content is stored itself, but it forms kind of like this address based on the content of the file. It's kind of hard to think about, um, but anyway, I, it's very very advanced technology. The fundamental flaw in using it in pure decentralized ecosystems has to go back, from my perspective, always with underlying incentives. What are the core incentives of running a full IPFS node today, right? First of all, I don't know if you've ever tried, but it basically will basically just chew up your entire memory, tear through any cores that you have. (laughs) You know, it, it sucks. And, um, you know, obviously Filecoin has, has come about to add some underlying incentive mechanisms, but there are certain flaws in it as well in the case of NFTs and permanent storage. The problem with IPFS is, is it decentralized caching? Is it permanent storage? Um, is it a decentralized CDN, yeah. right? It tries to do everything um, and hasn't necessarily been able to achieve one of those things very well, right? It's hard to use, um, in certain instances, unreliable. and in the case of NFTs, it goes back to this kind of incentive question, right? Board apes right now are hot. They're being called, requested, et cetera. In five, 10 years from now, who knows? I might own a board ape and there might be zero requests to really, you know, call that file for months and months and months. What's to prevent basically a particular node from basically continuing to store and maintain that file itself into perpetuity? Yeah, why would someone like what's the if it's payment once on IPFS, what's the incentive to keep, you know, to keep those things on the top burner to be readily accessible? Because, you know, the it needs to be milliseconds back and forth. If you have if it has to deep dive, you have to figure out where that image is stored or something, then it doesn't really work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, 
And that was something that we spent a lot of time in pastels seeking to solve as well. Um, and we came up with kind of a storage set challenge solution where there's at any given point in time, there is a random sequence. We use something called the XOR distance to basically randomly select supernodes on the network to inspect other supernodes to make sure that, hey, everything that they're supposed to be storing is there. And if they're not, they're slashed. So you mentioned obviously kind of the consensus mechanism at the beginning of the call. What I think is important to keep in mind is, you know, the core consensus blockchain itself <laughs> runs using proof of work, but we have a layer on top, these supernodes, which require users to stake a certain amount of PSL and they're responsible for validation of transactions, activations of NFTs on the network, storage, um, a lot of that kind of supernode to supernode consensus in terms of some of the actual storage challenges themselves. Um, the new duplicate NFT detection protocol that we've built called Sense, which um, I'll get into at some point as well. And so these supernodes in some respect are kind of like a you know, ZK rollup on our own blockchain um, that enable us to really achieve both the pure security and fundamental strength of a proof of work Bitcoin-like blockchain, but get all of that kind of smart contract type feature and functionality of, you know, an Ethereum type blockchain via these supernodes. And what's great too, is that, you know, these supernodes are really, you know, you can basically almost plug them into a variety of different other blockchains. So we've taken our core technology, our storage layer, our new duplicate NFT detection layer, and we've opened them as open web APIs for the world. So you could be a layer one NFT ecosystem. You know, we recently partnered with um, Nervos, right? They're, they're integrating our Cascade and Sense protocols at their NFT standard level. So if a user wants to launch a marketplace on Nervos or wants to basically you know, deploy an NFT collection, they're going to be able to actually ensure that that data is stored on Pastel into perpetuity. Effectively, it's basically just a series of different API request calls, we pass the, you know, we get the hash of the file, we run it on our system, we return the response, it's minted on the protocol, and effectively, they're going to get that redundancy storage security, but also maintain a lot of that network effect and the ecosystem of which they're minted. Yeah, it's like any organization needs an independent, like, I'm not going to say policing, but enforcement of the rules. And so like you see it like with military police or whatever. But so that concept that you're talking about is is inside the system and it's randomly selected nodes that become these like policing nodes in a way. And do they get extra PSL for doing that? Well, it's it's basically it's it's one of those to be a super node. Yes, you get obviously a part of the yeah. block reward and you get a piece of the transaction fees as well. Um, but part of the quote unquote requirement in terms of what you're doing, you know, it's the validation, it's the activation, it's this general monitoring con consensus in terms of, hey, so cool. these super nodes are in, are in common quorum. Um, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And you've staked this PSL. And if you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing, similar to other sorts of validator node type networks, you're going to get slashed. Sorry to interrupt your regular scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of 
all of these. And when you go to Paraswap or untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, and Polygon, look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system. And it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. So you guys uh, spent a lot of time kind of wargaming, thinking about token economics, thinking about like scaling. A lot of what ifs. You probably had like dozens of what if meetings, which are my favorite type of meetings because you get to just brainstorm like worst case scenarios and then come up with solutions. And honestly, some of I love problems that take a lot of time to come up with a solution where you have to spend days just kind of staring and gazing into the wilderness, thinking of a solution to a problem. I get stressed out too. I don't know what I'm saying. I get stressed out about problems that I can't solve as well. So I don't know what I'm saying sometimes. But uh, token economics and civil attacks, proof of stake, these people think about these things. And you guys took a radical step by limiting individual stakeholders to 5% of the total supply. Uh, tell me how you came to that conclusion. Right. Well, I mean, one thing just to keep in mind, too, is, you know, you mentioned all these problems that had to be kind of thought out and really manufactured. Our CEO, um, and just to kind of go take a step back, I'm at a Z Classic meetup in New York. It must have been 2018, early 2019, something like that. And, you know, I come across Jeff Manuel, the CEO of Pastel, and, and he's basically had just kind of quit his job from the hedge fund world and was talking about problems of digital art on the blockchain, NFTs. And me from an investor, I'm just trying to be as open-minded as ever. And I'm thinking, what is this guy talking about? Problems of NFT platforms back in late 2018, early 2019. Um, but the important thing to keep in mind is he also comes from a mathematics background. We both had technical backgrounds. And so the idea in terms of going through every problem, similar to how you would think about almost like a mathematical hypothesis in terms of, you know, basically here's everything that, you know, our potential counter arguments or counterattacks to what we've built and what we're thinking about building. Here's how to almost address that and able us to come up with this you know, super intricate system um, from day one. I mean, you can read his 180 page, whatever white paper that was out in 2018 that just really addresses every potential flaw in certain aspects of a decentralized network and how we're going to be able to solve it. But the most important thing to keep in mind is every single part and sum of parts is based off of cryptographic proof, proofs and mathematics to ensure that this is fundamentally trustless and decentralized, you know, through and through. Yeah, and that's that's like the most important thing. So so it's you're, it's in everyone's financial vested interest, uh, integrity interest, uh, everything to have a blockchain be on that like full path to decentralization and be fully decentralized. It's like the opposite of the closed source companies of the dot-com era, which were like building walled gardens, windows, things like that. Obviously, like windows 98, not like windows, like out of the gardens or whatever. But um, 
you know, we're building all of these these closed things. And uh, a lot of people believe that, like, the Internet was kind of co-opted by VCs. You saw Jack Dorsey on Twitter, you know, saying that the metaverse and the whole Web3 is going to be taken over by the VC world. But I don't agree because, again, it's in your interest to have a fully decentralized system. Yes, 100%. And look, I don't want to necessarily say anything one way or the other about those comments. But I think the biggest thing, too, is, you know, at the end of the day, these VCs are the ones that are basically, you know, backing fringe, isolated technology years ago, right? You know, we're investing in companies, taking bets on them, helping incubate them and, and see out a vision. Now, yes, you have a lot of platforms in the space that might take advantage of certain situations and consumer behaviors. But at the end of the day, a lot of these platforms that are heavily you know, VC backed and moving into kind of the Web3 stage and era, they're heavily manufactured and very thoughtful in terms of how they're structured, the broader tokenomics, token distribution schedules and things of the nature to ensure that maybe they're not decentralized today, but at some point in the future, yeah. there is a clear path to decentralization. And, you know, again, I, I, I hear the comments, I see the comments and how they might look on the surface. But from an outside point of view, I do think it's important. Obviously, you know, you do your own diligence. You look at the underlying platforms that you're backing and investing in and kind of assess some of those variables. Um, but like you said, we are moving towards that direction of sufficient decentralization, like we've seen with Bitcoin, like we've seen with Ethereum. And we'll have those types of networks that interoperate in the future from a pure, pure trustless perspective. I look at I actually look at three things when I'm looking at a project, whether to invest on behalf of one of the funds or or just to have someone, you know, on the podcast or if I want to work. And I look at three things and it's like really, really good uh, for the listeners when they're looking at projects. It's a really good way to tell the difference between like scams and, and stupidity versus like the pastel network and some of these other like projects that are trying to really change the future. And the, the three things that I look at are, is it solving a big addressable market? You know, like a dental coin is not really an interest to me because the dental industry grows by 2% a year. But the art world and the world for, for uh, uh, collectibles, memorabilia, just, just anything that's one of one where there's a physical or a digital, that's the world that you're looking at. The second thing I look at is, are you using blockchain technology in the best possible way to solve the problem that you're claiming to solve. Most of these blockchains, not most, a lot of them are claiming to do things, but they're not actually doing anything. It's like just emperors wearing new clothes. Uh, I think that's the term people have used. And that third thing I look at is the team. And I look at the people. And honestly, the, the projects that come out of the VC world, that's what you guys look at, the team. You look at who are the folks, because it's not just about that. Teams know what mistakes to not make. They know how to do treasury management. That was the biggest problem of the 2017 ICO world was that all of the companies and the teams didn't know how to do treasury management. And so the ones that came out of that were the ones that actually just knew how to like manage their runway. 100%, 100%. You know, you're so right. And there's, and there's a few other things too. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems we saw with that 2017 ICO craze, you know, yes, it was the scams and the fraud and you know, big white papers that were built on nothing and just kind of pie in the sky. But you also had situations where there was such a misalignment of incentives. I could go out, raise oh, yeah. hundreds of millions. I could go out, think about traditional VC. It's kind of a stepwise function, right? I go raise a little bit of money. 
have, you know, seven and a half, 10% dilution, I hit these milestones, right? I get to this kind of point in time, I raise some more money, I get to these milestones, right? So there's kind of a constant sort of checks and balances intrinsic to, you know, the broader early stage technology investment world, right? That keeps people in line, keeps motive, um, founders motivated and hungry. What we saw early on was you could go out and raise hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on day one, not have anything but a project or you know, a white paper. How is that effectively going to keep somebody motivated? It's just counterintuitive to human nature overall. And then beyond that, it's the broader treasury systems themselves. Now I have a ton of cash that, you know, in a typical scenario, I'd have capital call periods, things like that. Now I have to deal with this broader treasury management on top of all things. And, you know, we saw a lot of projects really kind of fumble and, and crumble from that respect. Yeah. It's, do you think similar things are going to happen if we go through a like range bouncing period over the next six months? Um, I, I think so. Not, not as drastic. I mean, look, we're at a very, very different point in time here. There's so many amazing platforms in the ecosystem building so many incredible things, you know, from the avalanches of the world um, to all the way to, you know, injective protocol and being a very kind of specialized layer one. Um, and I think that these teams are a lot more disciplined and people who are building and creating today. I mean, one thing to keep in mind, too, is, you know, what were they doing back in 18, 19, 20? Right. Um, a lot of companies in our portfolio. That's where we started to invest. And they went through that period in time and where the world around them seemed like it was falling and there was you know, so much kind of FUD and bearish noise and signals on, on crypto in general. Um, and so I think a lot of those platforms, you know, don't forget, have gone through that period already um, and have come out a lot more disciplined, strengthened and whatnot as well on the other side. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And um, we learned from our mistakes. And you have folks podcasters and the like who are like reminding us of our mistakes back then so <laughs> yeah um yeah <laughs> you know people get angry and hostile when they don't know how to understand something you know you notice that with like with anything really like religious tolerance it's just when right. when, when when someone else has the inability to like feel like they can understand something or they've been told and and honestly like with nfts if someone like myself who's been involved in the space for 10 years, plus years, I still am learning and understanding everything day to day. That scares a lot of people like that. How can they know it too? What should my listeners be doing so they don't miss out? Like you see so many projects just giving away free NFTs. I went to a football game and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which lost, offered me a free NFT. Should we just be kind of collecting them? And understanding what's going on, is there something else we could be doing to participate in this like real huge shift? Right. Absolutely. A couple of things I'd say in terms of what you touched on, you know, number one, like you said, it, it can become very intimidating. And like you said, you can close yourself off super fast if something is confusing or doesn't make sense and say, you know what, this is just something that's kind of fraud or tool a bubble again, or whatever it might be. And what I would encourage listeners to do is, is to really think about, you know, yes, in a new emerging high growth market, there, are gonna, there is going to be some irrational exuberance. There is going to be a lot of potential fraud or scams you can get trapped into. But at the end of the day, think about looking at the internet in the 90s or cloud computing in the early 2000s. You know, maybe we didn't understand it or really kind of fully contemplate it, but it had staying power. And there was a place to be in a position to be. 
So first and foremost, I would encourage listeners to you know, not necessarily fear the idea of the unknown, but kind of grasp it as something interesting and look for resources and areas to get educated in layman terms. And, you know, I think Andrew Norwitz has a great crypto canon. Oh, yeah. And you know, I've been in this space for a while. I still, a lot of times, I'm thinking, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, I don't, I don't either you know. sometimes. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think that's something to keep in mind, too. It's it's so fast moving. The other thing I would touch on in terms of what you kind of referenced is, yes, there's a lot of people making a lot of money, posting things. and But at the end of the day, what's important is to not try to buy into the potential FOMO and a lot of kind of the frothiness of the market, but to kind of keep a prudent and very long-term patient mind in terms of how you really think through getting involved, deploying capital, and don't buy into something for the sake of buying into it because you hear it might be the next hot thing, or you're going to get these airdrops or this and that, and you got to go mint this NFT to get this one, right? Um, But to really kind of understand what you're getting into first and make sure that you're thinking about this over the long haul and not just you know, is this going to be up a hundred X tomorrow? Yeah. That <laughs> I know of a company that literally their job is like NFT flipping. I'm like, that's the worst business model. That's... <laughs> I mean, look, I'm in the NFT business with pastel and I don't own many pure NFTs, you know, sure. so my fundamental view is it's still very early. There's great areas to be in. You know, if, if you want to gain access to a membership, right. Then Yes, you know, look at potentially a board ape and what they've done or a mutant ape in terms of ownership as membership and what that really means and entails and how that will transform the industry moving forward. Um, but really kind of assess kind of the fundamental keys and pillars of things we've talked about before, oh, yeah. you know, just fomoing in. And you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, I was walking I was walking on an art fair the other day with my wife and there was this really cool drawing, digital drawings that uh, this artist had she was drawing that looked like she was drawing uh, modern day versions of like Sailor Moon type scenes. And my wife really loved that. And there was one that kind of looked like us on a cloud. And the artist was actually selling them as NFTs of five. She's like, once I sell five and I was able to ver- on the spot, open C, pull it up, buy the NFT. And the cool thing about us, I have no idea who this artist is. Like her name's on it, but no idea down the road in the future, this is value to me. Like, I'm not selling this. There's only five of them. My wife bought it because it reminded her of us. I'll never sell it. But if I ever do, that artist is now going to be making royalties off of that. And I think that fundamental shift is, is unbelievable. Exactly. No, it's, it's such an important thing to touch on, too. It's a feature of NFTs that's so important people just overlook because it's become table stakes. This idea of, of royalties as well. Um, what I'm excited about too, and again, it's the less sexy side of the market, but all right, we have interoperability between, um, Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, different NFT ecosystems. You know, one of the things that Pastel is really actually trying to solve in this space as well. And we talked about our storage layer, but it goes beyond that in terms of pure metadata, ensuring that, Hey, as that NFT is tracking across various ecosystems, um, we're able to actually, you know, if we are tapped in through various bridges and different techniques. Um, and just inner blockchain communication, monitor and maintain a lot of that royalty system across various ecosystems oh, as well. Yeah. So that's the key. So there are, yeah, there are features that are obviously amazing in terms of what NFTs have created. They come with technological challenges. And oh, that's man. what I'm so excited to be a part of solving. There's years of building. There's, there's a lot of building that needs to be done. This is going to be like really 
maybe the cycles just slow down because we're building yeah. now and we have treasury management and things and things change. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories, talking to us about Pastel Network, the the, the problem and solutions with NFTs today, and all kind of everything around it. And and we we actually gave the listeners a really good way that they can go out and and figure out which projects are right for them. 100%. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, man.